like to continue from where we left off. But first, <clears throat> I got one note from a yogi saying that uh, the talk was okay, but they didn't really see the connection between that Yiddish story about herring and intelligence and skillful means. And, they, and the reason that they didn't get the connection is because there is none. <laughs> it's not that I'm playing games, it's just that I tried to kind of bend it and stretch it and uh, you could kind of make a thin case for it being kind of sort of skillful means and some staff people in Corrado, of course. But how many of you, how many of you saw a connection? <laughs> or you didn't and concluded that I'm very deep. <laughs> it was an, uh, a genuine attempt at skillful means, though, on my part, because uh, in talking about aging, sickness, and death, and uh, giving a few examples. Uh, sometimes it's unsettling for people, and it can be helpful to lighten things up before doing it, that's all. Um, if you recall, the legend of the, the four messengers, the Buddha who was very protected uh, from aging, from sickness, from death, uh, finally saw all uh, instances of all these human conditions. And he also saw a fourth messenger, uh, what is called a samana. It's the word used as somebody who's uh, become peaceful, somebody who um, has no pettiness, is um, friendly, generous, sympathetic to everyone. And the Buddha, of course, uh, moved out in that direction. And what was being suggested is that um, that's what our practice is, is to become that fourth. Um, now, what prompted the Buddha was, was seeing an, uh, an elderly, a sick, and a, a dead person, a corpse. But uh, I think, as I mentioned, he went back to the palace and reflected on it. It isn't, wasn't an automatic thing that you just see it and then suddenly you become very spiritual. Because if that were true, for example, the undertaker profession would just be crawling with enlightened people. But I don't think so. Or surgeons would be, there would just be droves of surgeons who were enlightened. So being exposed to death even on a daily basis, maybe in spite of that, doesn't necessarily lead to it. Reading about it doesn't lead to it necessarily. Seeing it on TV day and night doesn't necessarily lead to it. So it has to be taken up as a contemplation. Something has to be done with it. And a few of you have uh, tried and uh, have asked for a little bit of a hint on, uh, for example, uh, it was mentioned that, let's say you're sleepy and to reflect or to contemplate your own death can 
wake you up. At least it has served me that way, not all the time. Uh, and one person tried and uh, nothing came up. Uh, that itself is information for the person. It's not for me to tell them if nothing comes up. Uh, just like with the metta practice. And uh, in fact, in some ways it's, it can be uh, practiced in a rather similar manner. Uh, the reflection would, could be in your own words and would have to do with um, everyone must die. Uh, I'm not exempt from this lawfulness, or however you want to phrase it. But one way to, to take it up, it's simple, and it's very simple, similar to metta practice, is you very slowly and carefully uh, say it to yourself. It's not like a mantra. It's not said rapidly over and over again. But uh, you kind of present it to the mind. And uh, perhaps the mind takes it up and chews on it and digests it. And maybe it feels fear, in which case you practice with the fear. Or maybe it feels nothing. And so slowly and carefully you do it again. Um, that isn't that this works for everyone, but it is one contemplation, a simple one, uh, that may be helpful for you from time to time. Uh, I know many, if not all of us, or most of us, have done some metta practice here. And I think uh, many of us have had the experience where you utter these phrases of loving kindness, you direct them to yourselves, and it's dry. Nothing comes up. But you do it again and again. And uh, how you do it, of course, is very, very important. And being sensitive and receptive to it, which the Buddha was, obviously. You, you let it in. You hear what it is you're saying to yourself. Just as in metta, if you're wishing yourself well, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be free from suffering. If they're just words, uh, of course not much can happen. But if you actually hear that you're wishing yourself well, and Sometimes, as we know, uh, a moment arises when there's an opening and you really hear it and uh, some learning goes on. So we too have been uh, protected, just as the Buddha was protected from these uh, three conditions. Uh, we too have, we know that, and a great deal has been written about it. Uh, we know that our Elderly people, especially as they, as we become older, uh, often wind up in special homes where uh, we're out of sight. And more and more, uh, elderly people age and die away from home. It's not the way it used to be, where very often a family would be there. Now it's gotten professionalized and, uh, and specialized. Uh, and we have so many other ways. But remember. Uh, the four messengers are not to be taken so literally, because finally it has to do with inner work. And uh, here, again, I'd like to emphasize something, because I want to make sure that it's not misunderstood. In the legend, uh, the Buddha leaves home, becomes a wanderer, becomes a monk, a meditating monk. And that is one beautiful and intelligent strategy or approach to the problem of aging, sickness, and death. 
problem that everything that arises passes away. Um, but what about us? We're lay people. Does that leave us out? Does that mean we can't learn this? That this can't benefit us? Uh, I think not, of course, or I wouldn't be speaking about this. However, I think we have to make certain modifications and alterations so that our understanding and our use of this teaching is appropriate for us. Now, sometimes that is made difficult by the different teachings that are available. Within the Buddhist teachings, there are some teachings, not only in Theravada, this lineage, our lineage here, but you find it elsewhere, verbal and written teachings which uh, sometimes it's quite obvious and other times it's subtle, but it's um, negative about life. In other words, one, you could walk away from the conclusion, uh, walk away with a conclusion that, yeah, I mean, life is just awful. It's a nightmare. Every, you just get sick, you get old, and you die. Uh, I just want to get out of here, become a monk or a nun, and get it over with. Okay. That isn't our situation. Well, if, if that's your situation, good luck. But... Um, The liberation is within the life that we live, and it's also true for monastics. Now, this attitude, uh, that, this a negative attitude towards life, that life is a burden, uh, that uh, it's just filled with all this illness and suffering and cruelty, and uh, health, our health just keeps running down until finally it's not there anymore. Uh, that attitude, I think, should not be taken as a general one for the Buddha's teaching. First of all, this burden that's being talked about is all we have. It's the life that we have. And any kind of awakening must happen in this body, right here and right now, always. Always has and, always, and now. The Buddha, if you read the original teachings of the Buddha and not some of the commentaries, the Buddha uh, often talks about how precious a human birth is, how rare it is to have a human birth, how rare it is to have the teachings available at a time that you have a human body. And there are just so many beauties in life that I think it's sad if they're just passed off as sort of a kind of to vulgarize it a little, life sucks. I just saw a bumper sticker with that. Um, so there's a, this teaching, I feel, that this is a little bit technical for some of you who read around. Um, there's a, a book that's, it's not just this book, but this is a major influence, at least within Theravadan Buddhism, and now it's being read in the other traditions, the Mahayana traditions as well, the Visuddhimagga, The Path of Purification. It's an encyclopedic work. And... Uh, Buddha Dasa helped me with understand it in Thailand. Before that, it, some things have been pointed out as well, but he really is very, very clear on it. And uh, it's sort of like a minefield uh, in, planted in beautiful uh, earth, let's say uh, in Cambodia, where there's some very, very beautiful fields, but there are minefields in it. There's a lot of good things in Vasudhimaga by Buddha Gosa. And there's a lot of stuff that, um, and that I, in my own, 
my own uh, studies and also now modern scholars are finding that it doesn't come from the Buddha at all. There's no way to account for that. And it, it has that kind of a negative, life-negating attitude, uh, almost turning it into an ideology. Now, the Buddha does use practices like the uh, foulness of the body, it's sometimes called, or the, a better, the unloveliness of the body. In this particular set of contemplations, the 32 parts of the body, with your mind, you can get quite good at this. Uh, I've had some training in it. And you go inside the body and you see that it's filled with pus and blood and urine and feces and so forth. And uh, you can explore the body, but I don't believe the Buddha taught that as an ideology or a characterization of life, but more as an antidote, again, a skillful means for people who are just overwhelmed with lust. And particularly if they were monks or nuns who had committed themselves to celibacy but were having a very hard time, then this is a kind of antidote. When it's taught properly, it doesn't lead uh, to a kind of um, aversion, which would be another trap, going from narcissism to aversion. We've gone nowhere. It's the same thing. Uh, so please be careful and understand that uh, it's possible to live your life, perhaps not changing any of the forms that you're living your life in and through. Sometimes you do have to change your form. For example, if any of you are bank robbers or murderers, I don't think you're going to be able to keep doing that line of work and also pursue the Dharma. No matter, because the concentration you might have, it's called Mitya Samadhi, wrong concentration. It produces suffering, sorry. I know you couldn't put that on the information sheet when you signed up. <laughs> so sometimes you do have to change something because it's a head-on collision with wisdom and compassion and there's no way you can solve it. But a lot of work can be, uh, in a sense, reinvented from inside or reconstructed or reconfigured uh, and can be not only fulfilling but also uh, aligned with Dharma principles. Uh, so, I just wanted to make that clear, that the message of aging, sickness, and death is not one of despair. It's not one of uh, looking at uh, how you're living and just totally negating it, unless there's some other good reason to do that. Um, When you come to this, and uh, I'm going to spend more time on this because uh, I feel that uh, as lay people, we need to understand this really well. Otherwise, what will happen is uh, we live as uh, second-class practitioners, basically, basically uh, accepting a model that the only way to do this is to become a monk or a nun. And so feeling awkward about that or feeling that what we're doing is okay, but uh, it's not the real thing. Now, personally, and this is just another opinion, I think that the monastic choice does maximize, optimize the potential for liberation. I do think that. But it's hardly a guarantee. Nowhere near. Have you ever practiced in a monastery? If you do, you have the answer. It's not true. Just human beings like us. But it's set up to really simplify certain things and help us. In some ways, it's harder if you're a lay person with a family, of course. Um, but it all depends on attitude. 
For example, and here's a, a subtle point, let's take health. Is it possible to, uh, to take care of your body? Uh, and now more and more, in, at least in America, but I think it's in the, uh, in the industrial world, uh, there's so much information and uh, useful products and understandings about nutrition and uh, fasting and all kinds of wonderful natural therapies and, and even science is getting into a, a war against aging that's sometimes put that way. I think that terminology is not appropriate, uh, but a lot is being learned about the aging process, about health, about longevity. Uh, in the New York Times, just before coming up, uh, a while ago I saw a story, with, a study which showed that uh, at least Americans are, are living longer, but also perhaps even more important, uh, uh, those years are not so full of disability. They're less. That is, people are able to have a higher quality of life, even though they're aging. And uh, probably many of you, this center certainly shows the influence of a real care about diet and uh, what you take in to eat. Not only is an influence in terms of meditative life, uh, but also just for your overall health. Uh, let me tell you about one of my teachers. His name was Shivananda Saraswati. I learned something from him which uh, has been invaluable and perhaps it will be useful for you. When I met him, he was 86 years old and he had just come over from India and he was traveling around the United States on a Greyhound bus. Uh, he had four students who had uh, been corresponding with him in Rishikesh for many years and finally they uh, two in Canada and two in the States. And finally, they got together and they raised money to fly him over. And so he was, they were all spread out. And so he was, he was seeing first one and then the other, all four. And I happened to meet him in Canada at a yoga ashram. And it was very clear that this was some kind of an extraordinary person, very unassuming. At any rate, so I traveled with him and spent a lot of time with him and learned a great deal. He was a, a Vedantin. Some of their teachings and practices are similar to what we do, uh, what they call witnessing. Some of it, I think, is similar to what we call mindfulness. And uh, one of the things I learned from him that, uh, that might be helpful, he says that when he was a, a, a young monk, he traveled with all the Vedantins, and these are contemplatives, uh, most of whom are also scholars, uh, and they were monks. And he said they didn't seem to, uh, they were very devoted to their meditation and to their studies, but they didn't seem to care about the body at all. Uh, and it's a kind of Indian view of sort of the body is the problem. And if we can o only drop this uh, veil of tears, uh, then we can get free. Um, I have to remember to tell you about Tagore in a moment, because that will say this more briefly than I'm doing right now. Um, and what he saw was that uh, because they didn't pay much attention to food, and some of it was really out of their control because they lived uh, from food that people would offer them, 
they were having health problems quite often. And he started to then uh, conclude that he didn't want to want to do that. And so he learned. He learned a lot about diet, about fasting, about certain yoga cleansings and ex yoga postures and so forth, what is called yoga. And continued to be uh, a very dedicated contemplative. When I met him, uh, he would wake up at uh, two or three in the morning, just pop out of bed, wouldn't even do it, just go right into meditation for three, four, five hours. And then he'd get up and wash up, write letters, whatever he had to do. Um, what he told me was that if you take care of the body, you might have a relatively painless old age. No guarantees, but you might have a relatively painless old age. And he said that some of his deepest spiritual breakthroughs happened after the age of 75, and that he felt he was still having them. Uh, what he was trying to tell me, and he didn't have to tell me a second time, is that uh, the care of the body is not antagonistic to spiritual development, but that's only so if wisdom is in charge. And he made that very clear. Wisdom has to be uh, guiding it all. Wisdom has to supervise everything. Because otherwise, uh, a concern for the health of the body can wind up being leotard yoga. Do you know what I mean? Um, or, fine, if people want to live forever, uh, do it. But it, it's, in one sense, it doesn't um, contribute to liberation in any way. In fact, it's just the opposite. In other words, we dig ourselves in deeper. It's just another form of narcissism, where we're eating to uh, appear very young, we're eating to be very strong, we're eating to be or not eating, whatever it, whatever it is you're doing. Uh, to be attractive, and it's not that there's anything wrong with that, but it so often can be used and is used to feed the identification that I am this body. So I'm, I assume I'm speaking to meditators, and that what I'm trying to say is, as lay people, we have a certain freedom that monks don't have. We can pick what we eat. Now, I understand there's some problems with that, and I just mentioned them, I think. It, it is used in the service of ego. Monks don't have that possibility. By and large, they have to eat what's given, and that helps develop some other wonderful qualities. But it seems to me foolish if we have the opportunity and freedom to care for our bodies, whatever means, that we don't do it. And so what I'm trying to say is that this is not inconsistent with even reflecting on aging, sickness, and death. And this can be a subtle one, and that's why I'm going into such trouble with it. Because when people hear aging, sickness, and death, I, I saw a, uh, another bumper sticker, eat organic vegetables, drink purified water, and die anyway. Okay. Good teaching. Very good teaching. So why bother, for God's sakes? It's just going to be, the worms are going to have it soon. Uh, there's a, a somewhat different attitude in it, and it, it's a very subtle one, and it's, a, to me, a wonderful way to live. And that means that um, both life and death are treated with dignity and respect, both. See, the, the Dharma attitude is that it's not that, you, that death is way down there at the end of the trail. 
And so we just keep living and we know maybe sometime way off in the future it's going to happen to us. It's rather, as soon as we're born, we begin to die. We've already begun. To be, if you have a body, you've begun the dying process. They're walking hand in hand. It's so obvious. It's we who are not looking. We're not noticing. We're not learning. Okay. So it's a subtle one. Can we care for the body and even enjoy doing it? Not make it so sort of medicinal and grim, you know, uh, measuring out all our vitamins and our things with just such a long face. Uh, can we enjoy the process knowing full well that we're going to die? Uh, one of my teachers, his name is Vimla Takar, an Indian woman who I still correspond with. She doesn't travel anymore. She lives in Mount Abu, India. And she told me a story which uh, I don't know how you'll take to it, but I find it really helpful. It's in one of her books, too. Uh, she had a teacher who was a, a very old Indian uh, saint, and it was the end of the trail. He was dying, and he had just a few days, and people had to clean him and take him to the toilet, and uh, it was very, getting very close to death. And he was of a certain order where they would have to put a certain mark on the forehead in a, in a certain way every day. That was part of his ritual. And she was present in the room once when the attendants didn't give him a mirror, did not give him a mirror. And then he looked at them, you know, and he, in a sense, scolded them. He said, do you think uh, that just because I could die at any moment that my life is over? Get me my mirror. I put my dot on in the right place until it's time to die. Every moment that I'm here, I'm alive and mindful. And she said it was overwhelming for her to see that kind of an attitude. You could call it dying in the saddle, something like that. Um, so I think we need, you see, another reason for going into this is that right now what's happening, at least in America, is a tremendous interest in natural healing and in health in general. And who would want to stop that? I mean, that seems to be a good direction to go in. And more and more people are meditating. And more and more people are doing both. And so I think we have to learn how to do both in a way that uh, allows for wisdom to be in charge. Now, that it's speaking to a group such as ourselves. Uh, that's the only reason it makes sense. What I'm saying is uh, it's not to, that I'm suggesting we eat our way to enlightenment. I, th I think that's macrobiotics, anyway. Uh, but rather... Uh, that care of the body and respect for the body, in fact, respect for every aspect of life, is not inconsistent with understanding how tenuous, how uncertain our life is, how fragile it is, that we could die at any moment, and that all of us are getting older. We all will get sick. We all will die. It's not if. This is an inevitable. And so that's a rather sophisticated mind state that we're trying to develop one which is, encompasses something that often is uh, treated in, in a pol polarized way, as if it's a, a dichotomy, black and white, opposites. It's not. Uh, the Tagore story, which uh, says what I've been just saying in a very good way, uh, I was sharing some of the direction I wanted to go in the talks with Corrado, and he was reminded of a story, uh, a Tagore. Tagore was an Indian poet and writer, 
uh, in this story, this man uh, has decided to leave his wife and child. It's kind of the Buddha's, Buddha's life turned in, upside down. And he's going to go, in the morning, he's going to leave and go to the forest, leave his family and go to the forest to find God. And that night, he has a vision. And in the vision, he's told, you don't have to leave your family and go off to the forest to find God. Your wife and child are God. Get it? Do you see what I mean? We need something like that, I feel. Without getting up on a soapbox, we need uh, our practice to be a genuine lay, genuinely lay practice. Many of us have families. You have children. Uh, you have jobs. Uh, is it, do you see it as just a hindrance? God, I, I get, thank God I get up to IMS once a year. And then, and then what about the rest of the time? Thank God I get to sit in the morning and I get to sit in the, in the evening. If it's TM, 20 minutes. If it's uh, some other tradition, one hour. What about the rest of the day? What happens there? So we need a teaching that is seamless, that is really a way of living. Okay, enough. Let's move on to continue where we left off. Do you remember, how, does, how do we come to be that, that fourth messenger, that yogi, sitting on the tree, serene and peaceful? But, but remember, maybe it's you're sitting in front of a, com a computer, serene and peaceful. So let, let's not get literal, although time set aside like this is extraordinarily precious. I don't mean to, to demean it at all. Uh, what, we, what was mentioned was that Friday when we took the precepts and the refuges, that was the beginning of something very helpful. And for three days now, we've been working on calming and concentrating the mind. This is also part of the education of a, of a Vipassana yogi. It's part of becoming that kind of person who can live in the midst of aging, sickness, and death without being overwhelmed by it, without being destroyed by it. In fact, even learning how to use those positions and conditions of life to grow spiritually. And we'll go into that uh, throughout the week. Uh, so we've been, we've done a sila, at least we've touched upon it, the need for some kind of ethical uh, clarification and, and purification and, and living. Uh, and we've touched upon samadhi and, uh, and there's panya, or the, the ap uh, wisdom, the flowering of insight, what this center is named after. But before we get to that, uh, in this mode of practice, which is seamless, I want to uh, make very clear, or do my best to, that this retreat, in a certain way, is a microcosm of the life that we're going back to when the retreat ends. And that if we practice in this retreat in a certain way, uh, the dichotomy or the split between oh my God, uh, I have to go back, leave yogi land and go back to the world. Who makes world? Who makes yogi land? What, what is that all about? Uh, this tremendous uh, feeding rush for integrated teaching. How can we integrate the practice? Perhaps if we practice a certain way, it's not even a matter of integration so much as continuity. 
For example, this retreat features sitting and walking. When we're home, maybe we do it in the morning, we do it in the evening, and from time to time we, we have a few extra hours, we, we sit a little longer, we do a retreat here and there, and that's wonderful. And mostly we're what? We're working, we're studying, we're with our friends and family, lovers and so forth. Okay. Here everything's reversed. Here we have lots of sitting and walking, all you, could, all you want. <laughs> Boundless, almost. But, you know, daily life doesn't go away. There's a daily life on a retreat. We have a room, we have clothes, we have to wash this body, we have to dry it, we have to dress it, we have to get from here to there, we have to eat, we have to do number one and number two, we have a yogi job. There's a lot going on here that's not sitting and walking. How do we do that? Is that something we uh, put up with or cope with or get it over with? Uh, or is that really and truly an integral part of life here? For example, take yogi job. One way of looking at practice is that it's all training in, in intimacy, learning how to be intimate with all things, first and foremost ourselves, but of course nature, the world of objects, other people, and so forth. Whatever your yogi job is, you notice that you got it on a random basis, and I know that rule has been changed for a reason. Uh, what I noticed about two years ago is that people would uh, turn up here four and five hours ahead of the retreat so they could get their nice cushy yogi job. What good is that? This isn't a health spa. This is to learn about yourself. Okay, so what could be better than assigning a full professor the toilet to clean? Perfect, unless it's some rare professor. That was one of my, I wasn't a full professor, but when I was a professor, I was, the first job I was given in Japan, um, excuse my language, but it's a quote, uh, my teacher brought me there, a Korean teacher, and he gave me a big build-up that I was an ex-college professor, and he mentioned the universities I taught at, and was basically bragging for himself. And the head monk listened, they all, all the other monks were there, and the other Zen master who was leading retreat, they listened, listened, and then uh, finally, he said, oh, very good, very good. He mentioned the names of these universities, then he, when they assigned the jobs, they got to me and they said, Rosenberg, shithouse. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. And then all the other monks started Twitter and laughed, you know. <laughs> okay. Uh, so if you have a job that isn't exactly your uh, lifelong interest, <laughs> and maybe is also a lot of unfairness, here you are like a galley slave cleaning the dishes, and other people have a job, they just dust one little something. <laughs> and then, then they put on their Bermuda shorts and walk around. And you're still sweating and they're doing the loop and, you know, getting sunburned in addition to waking up. Um, that's all for us to practice with. So how do you practice intimacy with that, those kind of situations, with, with your yogi job? Basically, you notice separation. You see, what is keeping me from the job? What has to be done is what has to be done. 
But you can do it begrudgingly. You can do it with part of your mind watching the clock and longing to be somewhere else. You can do it uh, feeling uh, self-conscious. There's so many attitudes that we can bring to it. This is not my saying what I'm saying. It doesn't uh, mean that you drop all of that. That's who we are right now. It's more you learn. And so that's what's between you and washing the dishes, whatever that is, if there is anything. And then through seeing separation, you, you merge with the activity. And uh, actually, a seamless practice has a very simple principle that underlies it. It's not easy to do, but it's really exquisitely simple. It's whatever it is you do, do it wholeheartedly. Whatever it is you do, do it with concentration and no attachment. So that while you're on retreat, really sit and walk. When you go home, really hug your child, you know, whatever it is. And so if you, if you have that principle of bringing this awareness into whatever you do and valuing it all, it's not that sitting uh, is, has to be put on a throne and everything else is subordinate. If you do that, then of course there's no conviction you can hear people talk all day long in every retreat, certainly at the end of every retreat. Mindfulness in all the postures when you go home, you can practice just as well in a family. It's, it, it, it's just a cliche. It doesn't go anywhere. Because down deep, we know it's not true. The only thing that really matters is sitting and walking. Do you think that's true? Personally, I don't. I've done a lot of it, and I'll continue to do it, probably till I die. I hope so. But I also know that uh, there's a rich practice awaiting us which has to do with the rest of our life. And if we can respect that, just like that um, old yogi who even at the end wanted to put the dot right in the right place on his forehead and ask for a mirror, was annoyed that he didn't have it. Uh, it's a way of living. And using the breath as a metaphor Whatever situation you're in, when it's over, exhale it. In that way, you make room for the next situation. And if you fully exhale, then you can fully inhale that one. And you begin to notice what damages your breathing. While you carry one thing, you're in situation number two, but you're carrying situation one on your back. And as a result, you're in neither place. It's what the Chinese call killing life, because you're divided. Your body is here, your mind somewhere else. And so that kind of training can go on on a retreat. And that's why Corrado and I are, you know, continuity of practice. You're not going to hear the end of it. We're not going to stop. <laughs> and uh, let me end this and we'll continue uh, in subsequent evenings. These reflections are for us to be reminded that we are mortal. Uh, they're an integral part of our practice. It's a very important. It's not something I made up. The classical mode of teaching always includes this, and it always has since the time of the Buddha. And I would say it's uh, not uh, just Buddhist teaching. It's in all spiritual teachings, an understanding that we have to understand life and death. Um, some of the things we've been uh, talking about, and we'll go into it a little bit uh, with a little bit more depth later on. Uh, from the Buddhist point of view, what, the value in these reflections, 
one value is that, um, well, let's start, forget about the Buddha for the moment. Um, what value could it have to reflect on your, the fact that you're going to get old, older, sick, and that eventually each one of us, every one of us in this room, we will all be dead. In fact, the whole planet will be dead. At some point, there won't be one person left who's alive now. Not a one. And I'm not talking about anything nuclear. No bombs need to do it. In fact, if we realized that, we would just drop war right away. We're all going to go anyway, so what, what's the rush? But anyway. There are many, many benefits that come from it. Um, come from this contemplation. One, of course, and maybe the most important, is that it helps us appreciate how precious life is. Uh, we come to... We forget that. We're, we're just so automatic and uh, kind of rolling in our routines. And some of them are good routines, and they work, and we're happy with them. It's not that you have to stop, but it's, this is designed to wake you up in the midst of them and to also understand we don't have forever. Now, the preciousness of life doesn't necessarily lead to wanting to practice Vipassana or Zen or Tibetan Buddhism or whatever. Uh, it seems to me perfectly sensible that, or possible, that someone might just wonder what this building is all about and just pull up someone who's had no meditation at all and never read any of this stuff and listens to this talk and he decides, you know, that guy up there, he's right. Uh, I'm going to go to Reno and start doing all that gambling and sex, drug, and rock and roll. I don't know how long I have. It's up to you, once you get the message that you don't have forever, uh, to get your priorities in order. It's your choice. Now, what the Buddha is strongly suggesting, and of course this makes sense in a gathering like us tonight, in the Sangha, that uh, hopefully you'll see that uh, the choice of uh, understanding that we don't have forever reorders your priorities so that there is energy put into the practice. Uh, now we're at IMS and we're, we have a, an intensive practice retreat with sitting and walking and lots of silence. Surrender to it. Surrender to the instructions. Uh, if you don't uh, particularly like this style of teaching, talk to us during interview time. But Let's find a way so that you don't waste your time here. Okay, so that is, I would say, the main benefit the Buddha is talking about. There are other, what can come out of practice are also, this is from the Buddha now, he felt that the reflections on aging, sickness, and death were an antidote to pride that we all have. We develop pride in being young, whether we know it or not. Uh, we develop pride in being very healthy. We develop pride in being sort of living forever. And because of this pride, uh, the mind enters into courses of action that are ill-advised, that are not wise. We're blinded by these uh, states of health and so forth. And as a result, uh, we create actions that are harmful for ourselves and for others. And so understanding, even at a young age, uh, any age really, in fact, uh, in, 
uh, from a Dharma point of view, it's fine to teach children about death, but just is a way to do it. It has to be included with fullness of life as well. Uh, so that it's an antidote for, uh, for that. It also uh, can arouse a lot of fear uh, when you're reminded that you don't have forever. One of the things that can come up, and that's why you have to judge, it may not be a practice you want to take on at a certain point in time. If you're already feeling rather depressed because of something that's happened in your life, I wouldn't suggest this practice right now. Something like metta is much more appropriate for the breath. Um, if you feel up to it, sometimes, perhaps it's even happened during this talk, it has happened in Cambridge, that it has aroused fear in people. One time, a person just ran out of the room, just terrified, literally ran out of the meditation hall. It made me think twice about teaching it again, but I realized that uh, it's, uh, the problem's not going to go away. We all are still going to get sick, old, and die. If we're really practitioners, we have to, to some degree, come to terms with that. In arousing the fear, you have an opportunity to work with the fear, to practice with it, just as you do on the cushion with any other fear that comes up. And so at least take some of the potency out of it. And we'll go into more detail. Uh, personally, uh, I've learned the most about aging, sickness, and death, not from formal reflections or even guided meditations. And there are quite a few of them in the Buddhist department store. Uh, but from just life itself, uh, just uh, ordinary life. The, the teachings are everywhere on these subjects and uh, ways of learning. Life has a way of uh, teaching us if uh, we're willing to learn. Uh, why don't we leave it at that? Can we have a few moments of silence, please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.